This is Talkback Gardening with John Lamb and Deb Tribe. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. Good morning and welcome to Talk Back Gardening on the first Saturday in February. Good morning, John Lamb. Good morning, Deb. Good morning, gardeners. Although I'm a little bit worried about that word good. There's got to be a better word than good when you want to say hello to somebody and it's a little bit uh, daggy this morning. Isn't oh, it? it is. Very cloudy. Some of us are wondering... Where has summer gone? It is supposed to be another month of summer at the moment. Exactly, Deb. How long before the warm weather returns? And when it does return, how warm will it be? Very shortly, we'll talk to our uh, independent climatologist, consulting climatologist, Darren Ray. He'll be providing his three-month weather outlook for home gardeners. Later in the program, we take a look at uh, the River Murray and the fact that the floods are starting to recede. But as they recede, there could be problems in people's gardens. The effect of flood on soil, on lawns, on environment, uh, the things that are living in the soil. We'll be talking about that quite often over the next uh, three or four weeks or maybe longer. But this morning, we're going to take a look at the effect of floods as they recede on lawn and particularly the silt that's left behind. We'll talk to Stefan Palm, one of our top turf consultants. And we'll have a look at at more issues as the floodwaters subside over the coming weeks. And the big news, John, is that this time next week we'll be sitting in a beautiful productive garden um, and that garden belongs to Keith and Glenda Rudkin and it is at Unley Park as part of the Harvest Garden Festival. Jay on the text line says, where will you be in Unley Park? Get your pen and paper out. We are going to be at 9 Bellevue Place, Unley Park. 9 Bellevue Place, Unley Park. Uh, I'll be there right from 6 o'clock, but we'll open the gates to you from half past 8 in the morning. So make sure that you come down. If you've got a question to ask, John, come and do it live. We'll give you an ABC Gardening magazine to do it. And if you listen in for the whole of the program today, you will have the opportunity to win one of four all garden passes. They are worth $50. They will take you to all 12 gardens next weekend. Now, don't go in the, the, don't go in for it if you're not here next weekend. But if you're in Adelaide next weekend and you'd like to see all 12 gardens, we will give you opportunities in the next hour, four of them, to win an all garden pass. It's part of gardens, uh, Open Gardens Essays inaugural Harvest Garden Festival. Yes, what a wonderful learning experience to spend a weekend visiting as many of those gardens as you possibly could. And uh, I think starting off with our outside broadcast uh, uh, with at the Rudkins uh, Garden, I think that would be a very, very good start. And the nice thing is that uh, while you're coming in to watch us uh, do the OB, it's absolutely free. Although the whole concept of, of the Harvest Festival is, is uh, to raise money for charity. Uh, Oz Harvest, I think, is the charity. And so as you're coming in, you know, OK, it might be free, but you might like to donate a, a coin or two maybe to help the cause. Exactly. Or if your um, pockets are a bit deeper than that, a note or two might be great <laughs> for Oz Harvest as well. So there will be um, fundraisers there. So I hope you can join us next Saturday morning. On the text line, Alex says, Daggy morning, John and Deb. Uh, thanks, Alex. And uh, um, we'll... we'll Give you some more details a little bit later in the program, so do stay tuned. And if you'd like to speak to John, the important thing is the number, one three hundred triple two eight nine one. Jump on now and join the queue. Our text line for your comments, zero four six seven nine double two eight nine one. After a warm but not excessively hot January, here it is, it's February, and... Uh, it started off on the cooler side and certainly some pretty blustery winds, which is not the, the kind of weather gardeners like. But what's going to happen in the next three months? Darren Ray is our climatologist, uh, independent and consulting climatologist here in South Australia. And uh, he actually said a month ago, uh, watch out at the end of January and early February, could be a little bit cooler than average. Good morning to you, Darren Ray. Did you expect it to be as cool as it is? Well, it is, is a bit of an unusually uh, cool few days, um, but I, I must say I'd, I'd prefer this to 3 or 45. Yes. So I'll, I'm not complaining too much. And, well, I, and I, I think I, there'll I, be the many... The gar- break so, up during the day. Yeah, so. I, 
Okay, I was going to say, there'd be many, many gardeners who would prefer to have a 21 rather than a 41. So, uh, yeah, but, yeah. but could you explain just what's happening? Oh, we had a pretty strong burst of um, tropical activity came across the Pacific Ocean, and um, when it sits in a particular spot um, over after the northwest of Australia, it just it, it links through into the mid latitudes and changes the position of the high pressure systems, allows the cold fronts to come up a bit more strongly than they they would do otherwise. So um, yeah, so that's really the key thing is. Um, it's it's pretty transient, so you know as people look at their forecast from the bureau over the next week, it warms up pretty quickly into the low mid thirties, and you know I, I guess the short thing, John, is um, yeah, there's there's um, it looks like it's going to stay there, so summer hasn't gone, so don't don't worry too much if you're if you're looking for some sunshine and beach weather and warmer days to get out. Um, yeah, the next next two, uh, right through till probably about the last week of the month, it looks like it's going to stay low low mid thirties uh, forever and ever <laughs> until okay. the end of the month. Yes, okay. So uh, January can often be our hottest month. Uh, uh, presumably, it'll come in what average or below average? Do you think? Um, uh, probably probably touch above average in the end, um, with that sort of you know, long run of of days in the low thirties. Um, so. Yeah, a little bit above average, um, but you know, I, I guess the good news is there's not a lot of um, not a lot showing up in the hot, you know, really hot days. So, I, you know, I really, really, I'd be surprised if we we see another day in the 40s. You know, we've had two this summer so far. Uh, they've got to 40, so uh, we've had two so far, which is about the average. And um, yeah, we we might sneak through without any more extreme days. That's nice to know, Darren. And I think many people value the fact that you predicted well in advance the fact that we're not going to have heat waves this summer. We might get heat spikes. And I think many people have taken advantage of that and they've got their second planting of summer vegetables and things like that in. And it looks like uh, uh, those that haven't planted yet have still got opportunity. There's still another 10 or 12 or 14 weeks of good growing conditions. Uh, before we leave uh, February, rainfall. When's, what's best bet for rainfall or are we not going to get any? Well there's not a lot certainly in the next couple of weeks um, and uh, yeah, the, 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 the tropical activity is a little bit all over the place, it's sort of um, not really working together in a particularly coherent way so uh, it does look like it's going to hold off until probably around about the 24th, 25th um, so coming in during that last week when it does get a bit milder so you know we could, we'll, we'll see, uh, looks like some yeah, the, the bulk of the rain then and even then, the, the totals don't look particularly enthusiastic. So, um, yeah, it's you know, pr- pr- probably end up uh, just a little bit a, a bit below average for for February rainfall. All right. Well, take us now into March. I think you're saying February could end up a little bit cooler. But uh, does that sort of wrap into uh, March, or what's happening there? Um, so, yeah, in terms of when that when that tropical activity is coming through. Um, you know, with that, that sort of burst in the last week of February, that will extend to the first few days of March. So it, we could see something a little bit milder or cooler, so similar to what we're seeing at the moment. But then it, um, through, once again, through the bulk of uh, first half of March, looks like it'll be uh, warm up again and not a lot of rainfall. And then it looks like a kick, kick off again in the second half of March. Um, so a bit, bit milder and a bit wetter overall. So, um, yeah, so we, so we're in that time of year now where you know people are looking to get their grapes off and you know get get the figs harvested and all that sort of thing. So um, yeah, not a lot of not a lot in the way of significant rain event, but just you know coming in bursts. So just watch that period the end of February and and then again in the second half of March. Well, again, come back to a gardening point of view with those kind of conditions in March. That's the time when the soil is still very very warm. And if you put in your winter vegetables, the broccolis and cauliflowers and cabbages and things like that, uh, they all take off very, very quickly, uh, but not get bowled over by a little burst of hot weather. So that's extremely good. Uh, that's March. Take us into April. Yeah, so we're seeing, we're already seeing at the moment, the La Nina in the Pacific is weakening off pretty quickly. So um, so we're seeing that, that sort of milder uh, influence leaving from from the from the Pacific Ocean and the, and the La Nina influence, and so basically what we're seeing through autumn is both things getting tending um, warmer than average and drier uh, through as we increasingly as we go through autumn. So April and May look um, both on the drier side, and uh, and a little bit warmer than average. 
nothing too extreme. So, you know, look, think, think, think like last year and, um, you know, very pleasant autumn, very pleasant gardening weather. As, and as you suggest, John, it'd be uh, certainly plenty of opportunity there to get a, a last round of, um, of, uh, of uh, plantings in. Darren, while you're talking about La Nina and El Nino, um, Steve on the text line says, are we always under one of these two conditions or are there other more moderate climate patterns as well because we only ever hear about La Nina and El Nino? <laughs> yeah, that's a terrific question, Deb. Um, uh, if, if you look on average, they both both occur around about every four to seven years. Um, so, you know, they're not around all the time. So this burst of three in a row is pretty, is pretty unusual. Um, and it's, it, it is actually a bit unusual to go from, a little bit unusual to go from La Nina into El Nino. So... Um, yeah, so they're about every four to seven years, uh, we've had a bit of a run, um, and uh, yeah, so you do get years where it is a bit neutral, and that's a bit more stays in the neutral band in between. And um, you know, on average, there's more years doing that. Um, so uh, yeah, and that's probably extremely pertinent to the discussion about what's going to happen later this year. Exactly. Could I come in and suggest that uh, amongst the climatologists and the, those that have access to weather models, the weather models are coming in. And uh, so uh, we've had a, uh, a La Nina, a wet one, and uh, people are suggesting, or the models are suggesting, it's going to flip round fairly quickly to an El Nino, the drier, hotter one. And on top of that, there's the... Indian Ocean Diapole. And of course, you've been talking about that when the Indian Ocean Diapole is negative. It, 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 it makes it wetter and uh, it looks like it could be the Indian Ocean Diapole is going to go positive and presumably that means it's drier. What happens if we get an El Nino and a positive IOD at the same time? Are we in trouble into some very significant hot, dry weather? Yeah, so it's a, it's a really big the big question at the moment. I mean, it, it's a little bit too early to be certain, but it really is uh, certainly showing up in the in the seasonal outlook models that are available. Um, and you know, if you think back to two thousand and fifteen, that was the last El Nino event that we had, and that was also positive in the ocean dipole. So um, you know, very hot, dry winter and spring, and um, you know, we had uh, you know a, a relatively nasty bushfire season going on so yeah so that's the kind of conditions we could ex expect going on later this year um now there's a yeah you mentioned john there's a, there's a bit of mix in the models so there's there are models are including the bureau's one that are pretty enthusiastic about going towards el nino and, and positive id so hot very hot and dry conditions developing through winter um and for spring um but there are also about half of the models are also staying in the neutral band so I'm, really is, I'm interested yeah. in what you're saying, Darren Ray. What do you reckon? You've got 50-50 either side, but what does Darren Ray think? Yeah, so in terms of yeah, the impacts on this winter and spring, I, I don't know. I, uh, often what happens is the, the last remnants of the La Nina signal in the ocean temperatures need to be flushed out by, a, by having a go at an event. And I don't know, I, my feeling is that it could have a bit of a go. We might see, you know, the US have a bit of a lower criteria for El Nino, so they might declare an event. It, despite it being a lower, lower, using that lower criteria, um, but you know, I guess thing to remember, South Australia is a bit further from the action as well. So, um, you know, we've got we've got relative going into the into the into the into winter with relatively uh, wet soils at this time of year, um, and so you know, if we have a sort of weakish push at El Nino, it might actually not have um, a heap of impact. But I guess the key thing is it's really is signalling. Um, you know, we're likely to see something quite different for the last three years in terms of tending to be on the drier and and uh, hotter than average side of things for, for winter and spring. For those that like to plan well ahead in terms of their plantings in their garden and also the bigger gardens, uh, would it be right to suggest then that maybe this winter might be a little bit drier than normal and even uh, early spring might be drier than normal? Is that a... Yeah, it, exactly, John. That'd be the... Yeah, it's certainly very much the thing to take away. Um we're seeing, you know, uh, we've seen some drier autumns over the last few years, and, um, and then wetter, you know, second half of winter and spring. This year we're going to have a drier autumn, and then go through into probably a drier winter and and, and a warmer and drier spring as well. So, 
Um, yeah, so it is. It is going. I think we'll, we will. We will see things dry out quite considerably over the next sort of six six to nine months. All right. Just a quick one on the break in the season. I think last time you were suggesting uh, the, the no no signs of an early break. How do you see the situation now? Um, yeah, it's going to be an interesting one in terms of um, you know, how much tropical activity we get in late second half of Mar- March, and but then it looks like it weakens off, dies away. It's really not till the second half of May, so it could be you know sort of mid mid May or so before we get uh, get that sort of push into um, you know more winter type conditions going on. Darren Ray, you're a legend. <laughs> you always bring us these amazing outlooks, and uh, most of the time, I won't say all the time, just in case someone points it out, but you are right on the money. So thank you very much for your February outlook for a seasonal outlook for gardeners, and we look forward to catching up with you on the first week of March. Yeah, thanks, Deb. And uh, yeah, the sunshine will re-emerge. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. And sooner than we think, it will happen next week. Darren Ray, an independent climatologist, thank you very much for joining us. If you have been listening, you will know that next week we're going to be broadcasting live from the beautiful, productive garden of Keith and Glenda Rudkin. And that is at 9 Bellevue Place in Unley Park from half past eight. You're invited. A gold coin donation was all it will take to get you in the door for Oz Harvest. If you can't come to that, though, you can still drop in and say hello we have got four all garden passes for the inaugural harvest garden festival to give away this morning i'm going to give away one one of them right now if you're around next weekend and you can go to all 12 gardens call in now on 1300 891 we'll return to our general talk back gardening calls in just a moment join us on 1300 891 this is talk back gardening with John Lamb and Deb Tribe on ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. Congratulations to Penny from Woodville who is off to visit all 12 of the gardens at next week's Harvest Garden Festival by Gardens SA. Let me get it right. Open Gardens SA is the right way to pronounce it. Congratulations. Now, Jordan is in McLaren Flat. Now, you're hoping to replant some apricot, apple and pear trees, Jordan. Yes, I'm preparing to do a little bit of landscaping in the backyard. And unfortunately, I've got five fruit trees, which I absolutely love, but uh, are right in the way. Um, now they're all about 10 to 15 years old and produce fruit really well and I'd love to be able to get them out of the ground and perhaps give them away or transplant them somewhere else. So I just want to know if I'm wasting my time or not. Uh, so if you can wait until winter, you can do it. If you try and do it now, you've probably got a, a chance that uh, you might lose them. Can you wait till winter? Uh, unfortunately, no. Um, it's the only time I've sort of got to uh, give this a crack. Um, which is a real shame because uh, I've got a lovely avocado tree in the backyard that, um, yeah, friends of mine really want to try to keep if they can. So have you got access to a front-end loader? And Yeah, yeah. So there's quite literally 200 tonnes of dirt coming out of my backyard, so we'll be okay. taking out with a quite a large excavator. Well, now is the time to soak the ground, absolutely soak it. Put it on so that you're uh, putting on maybe a, you know, a, a eight or 900 litres of water per tree. So what you're doing is really soaking not just the topsoil, the subsoil. Do that now, and I would suggest that... Uh, uh, you wait then, uh, you might even sort of in two weeks' time repeat that and then two weeks later you consider uh, digging them up and uh, w- what I would be doing is is taking as much of the root system as you possibly can. So you be careful, you, you go round the tree uh, trying to end up with a very large root ball and if you can have a root ball that's at least uh, a metre uh, wide and probably about... 50 or 60 centimetres deep, then at that stage, if you can pick it up without breaking up the root ball, and if the ground is nice and moist, it should hold together, and then uh, you'll need to put uh, something like shade cloth or, or hessian around the root ball so it doesn't break up and get it back into the ground as quickly as possible you can, uh, then uh, you've got a reasonable chance. Once it has actually been moved, you need to uh, reduce the canopy. In fact, even at this stage, I would be reducing the canopy by about a third. 
So just reducing the amount of leaves uh, and the amount of uh, growth you've got there uh, so that uh, you start that now, start your watering now, and maybe in a month's time, if you've got that time to spare, um, you could do the moving then. Okay, well, that's fantastic because I have actually already started watering and actually started pruning very slowly on the way down. So it sounds like I'm on the right track. That that's is good. Yeah. Okay, right. No guarantees. But, oh, the other thing, of course, is once that you've moved them or wherever they're going, whoever has got uh, them in their garden, tell them it is essential that they shade the tree for at least for the first four to six weeks. Uh, it's 50% shade cloth, uh, even if it's thrown over the canopy, but uh, uh, putting shade over it because it'll be the direct sun on the leaves, and if the leaves can't suck up enough moisture quick enough, and because they'll only be a, a much smaller root system, uh, they may not be able to keep the tree cool enough, and uh, you'll lose it. So, sh- but shading will reduce the need, the need for water by at least 50%. Okay, that's really handy. Thank you very much. Thanks, Jordan. Hope the replanting goes very well for you. If you would like to talk to John, we've got lots of lines free. Call in on 1300 891. Peter from Cromer has done that. Now, you want to know if you can grow blueberries in Mount Pleasant, Peter. Yeah, well, technically Cromer, but it's only eight k's away by road and probably four as the crow flies. So, yes. Well, uh, uh, wouldn't mind giving blueberries a shot. When you say blueberries, uh, there are two types. There's the deciduous ones, and uh, there's the evergreen ones. And uh, uh, the blueberries, uh, the deciduous ones, need nice uh, acids, a soil, and the evergreen ones are, are prefer the pH to be on the acid side, but it's not so essential. Um, mm. Do you? Well, uh, which type do you, are you going to plant? Uh, I haven't even got that far. Uh, <laughs> right. Okay. Just, just bear... Paddings or whatever. All right. Well, uh, uh, the evergreen ones, I think, are tremendous because, uh, A, they're evergreen. Uh, they fruit much earlier. They have their fruit late winter, early spring, and into early summer. And as a result, uh, you have blueberries and, and you can harvest them in relatively mild weather, whereas uh, the deciduous ones will probably not uh, uh, be ripe until uh, midsummer, and you, you, there's a potential of them being damaged by the heat. And, and But uh, in terms of soil pH, the most important thing, uh, Peter, is to have a proper pH of your soil taken. Take it to uh, a garden centre that's got all the the right equipment or to an authority that's got the right uh, 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 equipment and you need a pH which is either neutral or on the acid side and the more deciduous you go the more acid it needs to be. Mm. All right. Well, that's good advice. And I'll see what I can do about finding some plants to put in there now. <laughs> Excellent, Peter. Well done. Thanks very much for calling in. Uh, Annie is in Sefton Park. Now, Annie, you um, would like to have a very healthy pomegranate. What's going wrong with it? <laughs> Hi. Look, the pomegranate tree is actually very healthy. Um, it's not flowering yet. It's, it's just had its fifth um, summer. And um, um, so, well, it's, it's flowering, sorry, but it's not fruiting, and I'm wondering um, what I can do. This time last year, I spoke to you, John, and you suggested some potash, which I which I did at that at that point, and again <clears throat> at the beginning of spring. Um, but um, yeah, still no no setting of fruit. Oh, that's disappointing. Um, mm. Tell me about the vigour of the plant when it comes out in spring. By the time the season is over, how much branch new growth have you got on on a, on the laterals? Um, oh, look, it's very healthy. You know, I do wonder whether I've maybe fertilised it too much. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's exactly yeah. where I'm coming from. Um, yeah. And by uh, asking you how much new growth, if you've got, say, new growth from, from spring to the end of, uh, up until now, and mm. you've got uh, a branch which has got, say, 30 or 40 centimetres of new growth, you're over-fertilising, or, or I won't say over, necessarily over-fertilising, possibly, but you're over-stimulating the plant. The plant uh-huh. is in growth mode, and while it's in growth mode, it can't produce, it's starting to flower, it's starting to get there, but it won't set the fruit, simply because the, it's got hormones for growth, and the hormones for growth 
dominate hormones for fruit and and, and, and flowers and fruit. So you've got to slow mm. the thing down. Uh, I would at this stage probably uh, looking at all the branches and so take a, a reducing the leaders by probably uh, maybe 20% and tip prune the rest of the branches, the sm- sh- shorter branches, take the tip growth out of it. So what you're doing is remove uh, those. The tip growth contains the, the hormones for growth. And so if you chop lots of them off, uh, it's got to make new growth and have new tips before it gets the hormones back for growth again so uh, yeah. you slow it down considerably and if you do that um, and, and, and keep on and it, it, one application of extra potash uh, per um, season is probably all it needs you, you can overdo potash and that'll cause problems with other elements and use uh, seaweed uh, extract and I'll be using the powdered seaweed extract uh, uh, rather than the liquid one simply because if you look on the label it's got uh, an extraordinarily large amount of extra potash in it for nothing Okay, so when you say potash one application per season do you mean you know summer Summer, spring, winter. Well, you'd put a, yeah. Well, presumably uh, you're going to sort of water them, uh, uh, fertilize them, mm. say twice a year in, in mm. uh, late winter and probably uh, uh, early autumn or late summer. Put on a good balanced fertilizer, and in mm-hmm. springtime I would be putting on just a little bit of extra sulfate of potash. But it, it's no miracle cure. It just helps uh, uh, change the uh, equation uh, if. Uh, you're getting almost there, but you've got to have the right hormones for fruit and fla- vegetables, uh, fruit and uh, flowers. <laughs> and if you've got that, a little bit of extra potash can help. And if you haven't got those hormones within the plant, you're wasting your time. So, John, can I just check with you? Are there um, species of pomegranate that need a mate to um, to fruit? No. No, good. Oh, that's great. All right. Thanks for Thank you, Annie, for calling in. In fact, if you'd like to call in right now for John Lamb, you will get through to him very quickly on 1300 222 Don on the text line, which is 0467922891, says, We grow blueberries in Woodside easily, but you'll need bird protection, especially from those pesky blackbirds. Oh, yes. And also, you'll need protection from grandchildren. <laughs> if you want. Uh, now, now, we've been speaking about the Harvest Garden Festival. The big news is, of course, we'll be broadcasting live from uh, the garden of Keith and Glenda Rudkin next weekend. Now, on the text line, Anne says, with the Harvest Garden Festival, can you pay at the gate if you go only to one or two gardens? And Helen from Collinswood asks, you're saying the festival is free, but it's $20 for four gardens and 50 for all of them. Please clarify. Yes, it is $20 for a four-garden pass. It is $50 for an all-garden pass. But if you come to the garden of Keith and Glenda Rudkin during Talkback Gardening next week from half past eight, the entry will be free, but we would very much invite you to make a donation to Oz Harvest on your way in, a gold coin or more if you can afford it. Um, and that is the Rudkin Garden, Bellevue, 9 Bellevue Place at Unley Park. It will only be free while we're broadcasting there. Otherwise, it will come under the Garden Pass system. You can roll up and, and pay. Uh, you get your tickets uh, as, as you go, right? Yes, I mean, but you still have to get either a four-garden yes. ticket or an all-garden ticket. That's right, yes. So, but you can turn up and do that at a gate, but you'll just need to do that. So, you know, you can't get one or two. You either get a pass for four or a pass for all of them. Speaking of the Harvest Garden Festival, we've got a $50 all-garden pass to give away right now. Call through on 1300 888 This is Talkback Gardening with John Lamb and Deb Tribe. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. Congratulations to Meredith in Victor Harbour who has won our second All Garden Pass. Meredith, it looks like you're going to need to tap a friend in Adelaide on the shoulder and see if you can stay the night and see all of the 12 gardens next weekend. Congratulations to you. Uh, Patris is from Goolwa Beach. Now, what's been eating your sweet corn, Patris? Well, they haven't. They haven't actually been eating my sweet corn. They, they're on the sort of outer layer of the. Um, well, it's not a leaf, is it? It's a shell top husk on the sweet corn. Yes. Yeah, okay. and they sort of 
black and uh, there's beige ones, so I don't know what that means. Black and beige. Uh, the blackness is is the the dominant part, and and the the, the beige colours on the back, or yeah, yeah. The because when I went in there the day before yesterday, I thought, oh my god, what's happened here? One of the corn was nearly completely black. Right, at the front end, they got little sort of long little antennae, little two little antennae that sort of float round a bit. Well, it's hard to tell, John, because <laughs> well, I got magnifying glass out under the light. Oh, and, well, uh, they're, they're very small. Yeah, yeah, tiny little things. Oh, okay, right. Well, could, I suspect it's the juvenile stage of a bug. Uh, the bugs are coming in. Uh, they often live in the grassy areas, and uh, uh, as the grass dries out, they look for greener pastures, and gardeners, of course, are a lovely place to go. And you might find that the, the adults have uh, mated, they've laid eggs, and uh, the eggs have hatched, and then you're getting little young bugs. And at the young stage, the nymphal stage, they go through a number of molts or instars, and uh, they change their colours, or they're different to their colour to, uh, to their parents. So it's often difficult to nominate which particular bug it is. But the thing is, are they doing any damage? No, they're not. I just about to say they're not. Once I peel off a couple of the layers of husk, it's fine. There's nothing. Okay, well, then I would say uh, leave good uh, alone. Uh, they're not doing any damage at this stage. Mater, as they as an adults, they might fly around and, and attack something different. But at this stage, I would let nature look after your sweet corn for you. And uh, if they cause damage, then you might need to do something. Uh, but yeah. I don't think if they're not doing any damage, you can find simply because you know, as I say, there are lots of bugs coming in off the dry uh, conditions, and and uh, they just uh, hiding or habitating or just hanging around, but they're not doing any damage. So why do anything to try and destroy them? True enough. Yeah, I got heaps of wild tomato. Well, I call them wild, but uh, from the I give the chooks. Uh, ripe tomatoes with their feed sometimes, and now I've got <laughs> tomatoes in my driveway and my car. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it fascinating how often the self-sown tomatoes are far more durable than the ones that you plant? Yeah, yeah. And it's simply because of transplant shock. When you get a seedling, you've got to uh, move it and, and you disturb the root system, whereas uh, a self-sown, it just comes up, there's no disturbance to the root system. It just uh, emphasises the importance of looking after the root system of the plants. Fantastic. Well, I've got one. I've got one that's come up right in front of my door in the garage, and uh, I can't get my car in the garage. <laughs> I will enjoy uh, the fruits of it, Patris. <laughs> I will. Lovely. Yeah, they are fruiting really well. I've got yellow ones, red ones, yeah. purple ones. Yum. Adam, Lindsay, yep. Gordon, take now the fruits of your labour. Exactly. Well done, Patris. Thanks for the call. One three hundred triple two eight nine one is the number. Jeannie from Elizabeth, you've got mildew on your grapevine. Yes, I do. Yes, it's um, it happened uh, mid December. We'd had um, rain and very humid weather. I haven't had mildew on that old grapevine for about two decades. It doesn't surprise me. Uh, when yeah. you say it's pow- a powdery mildew, is it a white powder or is it just the the leaves are sort of looking uh, uh, going brown and, and crinkled? No, it's a white powder and it starts off, they look a bit mottled right. looking. Yeah, uh, grape vines in particular, anybody who's got ornamental vines also have had problems. It goes yeah. back to very, very humid weather we had in springtime, warm and mm-hmm. spring, and it was downy mildew that caused the problem. And downy mildew is not a, a significant problem in, in most gardens, and so people either thought it was powdery mildew or wondered why their leaves on on their grapevines look so awful this season and it's because of the downy mildew earlier on. But right now ah. we're getting the right kind of conditions for yeah. powdery mildew. And oh, okay. So when you get uh, warm and humid conditions and in particular when you get cloudy weather, you'll find yeah. powdery mildew takes off. Um, right. So it, it, can you spray? Do you want to spray or do you want to... Um, it's difficult. Yeah. <laughs> it's such a big vine. It covers the old garage roof um, and then covers uh, the clothesline. Uh, it's huge. Yes, and once it gets established, mm-hmm. it's very, very difficult to control in a, a, yeah. a grapevine. So 
simply because you've got leaf on top of leaf on top of leaf and trying yeah. to get penetration of the spray. I think you just have to grin and bear it, I think. Yes, I wondered. I did, 20 years ago, I did, but it was a much smaller vine then. Yes. Um, and when I moved in, it was already a fairly well-established vine, so it's probably 50 years or more older. Yes. Okay, well, if it doesn't happen very mm. much, I think ignore it and just grin and bear it this season. Yeah. People that have got uh, powdery mildew or fungal disease on their uh, vines every year, uh, yes. it's important that they, those people look at their vines and very early in the season spray their vines with, with sulphur, with wettable sulphur. And if you do that early in the season, wettable sulphur is very effective in controlling fungal diseases. And what happens is you get the, fung- the, the sulphur into the canopy of the uh, vine early and then you get hot weather and, and you'll find that the sulphur sort of uh, sends off fumes and that also has a, an effect in, in reducing the likelihood of a fungal problem. Thanks, Jeannie. Uh, we wish you well with that particular problem. In just a moment, we're speaking to Stefan Palm, our lawn consultant. Last week um, we received um, a, a few messages actually saying, look, the floodwaters along the River Murray are now subsiding. What is going to happen now to my lawn? Stefan will tell us in just a moment, but I'd like to remind you, if you haven't already done it, that John Lamb's Good Gardening newsletter comes out every Friday and ABC Radio Adelaide has a newsletter as well. So if you're wondering about details of our outside broadcasts, of the festivals and the things that we're a part of, sign up to both of those newsletters and they will arrive in your um, email inbox and you don't have to do anything else, but just wait for it. And they're both absolutely free. They are, and they're packed full of information. Just on that, if you have trouble calling in, I have another Harvest Garden Festival All Garden Pass to give away. It's worth $50 for SMS only. So please text through your details on 0467 922891 and Steve will look at the, uh, let's say the 11th SMS. Thank you very much for that. But let's talk lawns right now. Yes, near record level floods along the River Murray are starting to recede and it'll be a quite some time in some areas before the floodwaters disappear. But once they do f- disappear... What about the garden? What's the effect of the silt that's left behind? And uh, when you get water over your vegetables and your fruit trees, uh, let alone uh, the the natural uh, environment around, what are the consequences? We'll be looking at that uh, on a number of occasions over the next few weeks. But uh, last week's caller wanted to know what to do with the silt on the lawns, and I thought uh, probably... Couldn't get a better person to give us advice on that than Stefan Palm, turf consultant here in South Australia. Good morning to you, Stefan. Good morning, John. So let's take a look at it. Uh, um, What's the effect of flooded conditions on a lawn? Is it terminal? Bearing in mind that probably most of the lawns in South Australia are either cooch, buffalo or kakuyu. Yeah, so the the effect that um, floodwaters have on on lawns can be buried like it it's it's um you can have erosion damage like fast moving water can can um undermine it and remove it in some cases um but um if we're talking about um flood damage by way of immersion um you can get immersion injury um in in one sense and you can also get um injury to the lawn caused by the you mentioned at the silt that builds up on top of it as a result could we, so take like a, could we take a look at what goes on when uh, the soil, I mean, the soil is the engine there and uh, the soil uh, has water on it for a number of weeks. What happens within the soil? Yeah, almost straight away um, when, when the uh, lawn gets, um, or the, the soil gets um, saturated and, and buried with water, um, oxygen starts to become depleted from the, um, from the soil and, of course, plants, lawns need oxygen to survive. So... You start um, the the, um, the environment goes all black, the the lawn um, all dark, and the environment uh, the lawn can't photosynthesise, um, and therefore it starts to eat into its own reserves to try and survive, and that can only happen for a, for a, um, uh, that that can happen indefinitely. So um, there there are limits to how long a lawn can survive underwater. Well, let's look at those limits. Uh, is there any uh, uh, sound information as to how long? Uh, a lawn can last underwater and come out surviving. 
Yeah, so, the, so research has been done um, in the States. Um, Peter Kirby from My Home Turf has done a lot of um, work into this um, in recent months just with the uh, interstate floods that have occurred. Um, some some research out of um, um, Louisiana, Louisiana State University, um, um, they researched after two months of um, um, immersion on, on a lawn, um, what were the survival rates, and they found that um, lawns such as Cooch um, and you could extend that to Kaikuyu, had about a 73% um, shoot um, survival rate. Um, after three months, that, re- that reduced down to about 35%. Um, and so um, the, the longer it stays under, the more damage it gets. It so, also depends on the So it will t- the lawns will take quite a number of weeks of inundation. Uh, in terms of the three main lawns, the Cooch, the Buffalo and the Kaikuyu, is there a, a, a variation in the tolerance of those grasses to being flooded? Yeah, Cooch will um, survive the best. Um, all research points towards Cooch being the most um, tolerant of, of submersion, um, followed by Kaikuyu and um, Buffalo would have, out of those three, the least um, capacity. That's because of its uh, root system. Yeah, it doesn't have the underground rhizomes, um, therefore it doesn't have the reserves to be able to cope as well as um, um, Cooch and Kaikuyu. What's the effect on the soil biota? Um, look, under anaerobic conditions, which is where the, um, um, the oxygen disappears, you, you tend to get the more um, toxic type um, biota dominating and, and eating the oxygen. So um, um, that's when the soil starts to go a bit sour, when it gets extended. So... Um, um, what happens or, or um, it's very important that once the, um, um, the water subsides that you reintroduce positive and good bacteria and, and um, you encourage a soil biology um, as soon as you can. You do that by removing the, the silt. So um, using the products which are supposed to be soil stimulants, would they be effective? They would, yeah. So um, um, introducing oxygen back into the soil is key um, to... Um, getting your turf to, to regenerate so removing that um removing that silt layer is is critical as soon as possible the longer that stays the worse the damage is going to be um introducing oxygen by coring um but also um yeah stimulating root activity and you can do that um by by adding products to the um uh to the soil um fer- fertilizing is helpful with um organic fertilizers that contain a lot of this um, um micro diversity uh, biological diversity um, and also some of those um, seaweed-type products that stimulate root development. Let's take a look at that silt. I mean, if it was a, a farming property, a farmer would get on his tractor and stick some harrows behind it and go round and round and uh, uh, would stir up the silt and try and sort of activate uh, uh, and get the silt uh, broken up. Uh, home gardeners don't have access to that kind of uh, equipment. What can home gardeners do with the silt? Should they try and get rid of it or should they try and incorporate it? Uh, anything more than a centimetre of it is um, considered um, damaging. So um, if it's less than a centimetre, you know, you could you could get away with calling it a top dressing. But um, if it's more than that, and it most likely would be more than that, um, you do have to remove it. And, you know, along the river communities, you're going to range from home gardeners right through to people with quite sprawling large lawns. And so your removal could be, you know, if you have a small lawn, it could be as simple as a, and I say a wheelbarrow and a, and a, and a shovel. But... Um, once you get beyond that, you know, you can get little mini loaders that you can hire from your from local hire places with um, buckets that you can remove it with. Oh, yes, um, that's right. And that'd be good fun. You can buy a you know, little sit-on, little ride-on, little uh, like a, a lawnmower, and then you just yeah. go along and scrape it. Uh, you're, you're using the word coring. Could you just sort of explain what is coring and why is that important? Yeah, coring is going to... by inter- This this silt's quite fine and, and it has the potential to... to um, not only bury the lawn, of course, which is no good, but also block up the the, um, the soil itself and, and prevent it from free draining. Um, and so, by coring, you're actually taking hollow. Or you, you want to avoid the sort of solid core um, tines that people can use. You actually want to remove physical cores of soil from the soil um, itself and um, replace that with a light, super light top dressing of gypsum or, or, or sand, just to be able to um, move water through the soil quicker and allow it to dry out faster, which, of course, is going to increase the oxygen level in the soil, which is and critical. Once the grasses start to recover uh, mowing height, should you let the grass grow tall or should you try and keep it short? Yeah, in the in the first instance, um, you, you really want to be able to um, um, reduce the amount or, or not add any more stress to the lawn. So just letting it grow a little longer in the first instance is going to be important. 
And that's important because you want the grass to be able to um, regather itself back up and introduce more mm. uh, carbohydrate reserves back into the into the plant itself and get itself going. So once, it's, once, sorry, you go. No, no, I was just going to say the time's going to beat us, Stefan. So um, yeah, th- there's a lot of technical information available from uh, people that have got uh, information, uh, technical data, such as uh, turf consultants and, and, and uh, those kind of people. So thank you very much for sharing your knowledge this morning, Stefan. We'll continue the discussion looking at uh, the effect of floods on uh, fruit and vegetables, and in particular, the soil biota. That's a very, very important one. We won't do it next week because of uh, our yeah, outside broadcast. The floods are going to recede over an, a number of weeks, so it's going to be an ongoing problem. And if you've got particular issues or questions, if you'd like to send them in to Deb, uh, she can then, uh, I'm sure she'll pass them on to me. And That's right. We can see if we can find the, the right expert to be able to provide a solution. Exactly. If you'd like to send through, uh, in fact, anything you'd like to send through to the program, we'd love to receive it. It's at Adelaide Weekends. Adelaide Weekends with an S at abc.net.au. Thank you, Stefan Palm. Great to catch up with you as always. Thanks for your advice. Um, And just on a a positive note, Angela from Belair says... um, now, I wonder why Angela in Belair is saying this. I live in Moama, New South Wales, next to the Murray at Echuca, where we were under several metres of water for two and a half months by the Murray. The lawn around the skate park open space that was under is now coming back fine and has nearly all grown back, which is lovely to hear. And congratulations to our SMS Harvest Garden Festival winner, Judy in Norlunga Downs. Have one more to give away. Why don't we do it right now? Phone in this time one three hundred triple two eight nine one to win an all garden pass to the Harvest Garden Festival. This is Talkback Gardening with John Lamb and Deb Tribe on ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia, and Broken Hill. Joining Penny from Woodville, Meredith in Victor Harbour and Judy from Norlunga is Natalie in Millswood. It's an all-women affair this morning. Um, All have all garden passes to the Harvest Garden Festival next weekend. But don't forget, you don't have to pay anything other than a donation to Oz Harvest if you can afford it. If you'd like to join us next week at 9 Bellevue Place in Unley Park at the Garden of Keith and Glenda Rudkin, where we'll be broadcasting live from half past eight. Jill is in Kangaroo Island. Jill, you would like to strike a mulberry tree. Yes, I would love to strike a mulberry tree. Uh, I don't have one, but my neighbour has, and it hangs right over my fence. At the moment, it's fruiting beautiful mulberries, and each year we trim it back along the fence line because it's a huge, almost, I'd say, a heritage tree. Uh, and I'd like to know, no one eats the fruit on it, only me, but I'd like to know when's a good time to strike those and what uh, potting medium should I use to put them in. All right. When do you cut the tree back, Jill? Uh, usually when it's finished. Um, oh, well, I th- I've actually, I think the gardener did it probably about a month, a month maybe six weeks ago. Uh, but any time when I'm down that area of the garden and it's annoying me, uh, I chop it back. I was hoping you'd say that you prune it back in winter because in winter... That's when it's just been, yeah. Yeah, it's deciduous and it's not growing. And if you uh, take your cuttings then, uh, you'll find that you've got probably a 99.9% chance of uh, them striking. If you take cuttings now, you need special Mm. equipment and and I won't go down that track. Wait until winter. I was going to wait until... Yep. Mm, I've okay. got to wait till after it fruited. Uh, All right, so you need uh, the cuttings, so it's new growth, you know, yes. growth that's has come from last spring to now, and yes. it should be the cuttings should be the, the bottom section, the, the thicker pieces, round about pencil thickness, around yes. about probably uh, uh, ten to fifteen centimeters long. So you've got a number of little buds, uh, one at the yes. top, one at the bottom, and at least one in the middle. And then yes. uh, I would be placing them into, uh, uh, if you can get, you can buy little packets of coarse washed sand. Yes. It, it needs to be uh, washed sand, not the builder's sand. And no, so it no. needs to drain very, very quickly, So, it, it, but it holds it moisture. And you put yes. probably uh, half a dozen cuttings in a pot, and it's probably in a little 10 centimetre wide pot, and uh, yes. put them in there in winter and leave them there. 
And yeah. if you leave them there at least until springtime, you'll get excited because the little buds will burst open, you'll get leaves, but there won't be yeah. roots at the bottom. So you need to no. hang on. And uh, yeah. once you, uh, probably it'll be autumn before it'll have much of a root system. And at that right. stage, you can take them out of their container and either pot them into sm bigger pots or uh, the best of the cuttings. You can uh, pick the best of them out and, and put that in your garden and look after it very, very carefully. Oh, thank you. I, I think what I've done before, I've tried to replant them too soon by, by what you're saying. Yes, I haven't waited long enough. I've had some in the pot that have sh shot, uh, but I've lost them because uh, probably because there wasn't any root system or not enough root system. Yeah, no, so no. Just be patient and all will happen, Jill. Thanks, Jill. And very quickly, let's try and squeeze Dave from Walkerville in with advice on how to transplant cycads. Hi, Dave. Hi, hi everybody there. Now look, I've, I've had 50, these two cycads in for about 15 years, not in pots, but mo they're more like urns, they're a metre high. They've grown so big that they've now burst the, uh, these urns and they have to be transplanted uh, into the ground. Uh, the root systems would be at least a metre uh, deep, going right down to the bottom of the pots, and uh, above the uh, entrance to the pot, it, it's showing about 300 mils of, uh, of trunk. Okay, and you're going uh, to take them out of the pots and into the container, into the ground, or into, into another container? So how, how, no, 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 into the ground. How deep do I have to dig the hole? Uh, well, as, if you look at the, the depth of your urn, and uh, you should have probably about, uh, say, 30 to 40 centimetres of depth um, to loosen the soil and the hole. Uh, it, it, when you take it out of it, it, its container, it, it'll be probably a little bit root-bound, but uh, take as much of the root system as you possibly can and without disturbing it, and I think if you put that into the ground, but don't do it now. Wait until probably... Uh, next September, springtime, so you've got a full growing season for it to recover. If you do it late September when it's tomato planting time, you've got a good chance of success. So Dave, give us a call closer to September for some detailed advice on that. John, this time next week, we'll be at Nine Bellevue Place, Unley Park with Keith and Glenda Rudkin. Looking forward very much to an outside broadcast and uh, come along. You can ask your questions and uh, you can look around the garden. I think it'll be a good start to the Harvest Festival and uh, you get to as many bar gardens as you possibly can and I say until next week, good gardening. <laughs>